Our text today is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 28. If you have a pew Bible, that's on page 560, unless you have one of the large print ones. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's first epistle to the church at Corinth, uh, starting in verse 12. I'm going to pray real quick and we'll jump in. Lord, we welcome your presence. Lord, prepare our hearts for what you're saying today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as a man, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is God's word. Professor Ethan Mullick at the business school, UPenn's business school of Wharton, is really interested in AI. And he wanted to find out how easy it would be to make a deep fake of himself. And so with a few AI tools, for only $11 and in eight minutes, he produced a fake video of himself and posted it online on LinkedIn. A deep fake is a machine learning, a special machine learning that uses deep learning to take uh, audio and perhaps video and you can synthesize that and create a video or an audio clip of a person that they've never said. It is amazingly powerful and amazingly dangerous. Can you imagine what that could do to a political campaign. 
Same voice, same face, but a message never conveyed. What's interesting is that we live in a society where we have more access to fake things than ever. Technology has brought for us both an ability to know things that we could never know before. For example, if you look at Discovery Channel and all the animal creatures that are in, you know, underground and they can put little cameras under there and all the technology that allows us to see their habitat and their, 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 their habits, we can know that. But at the same time, there is more fake information proliferated around the world than ever. And we have more access to it than ever. We think about social media. We think about even what's going on in the news about mainstream media, even as Twitter has said that NPR, for example, is a state-run media organization. How do you know who to trust? You see, a fake, fake news, fake information, and deep fakes only pose to create a society where our ability to trust is diminished, our ability to know certainly, certainty wanes, a deeper mistrust permeates overall. What Paul is presenting to us is not a deep fake. In fact, the title I want to give this is Resurrection, the deepest real. There's three things you need to know about the resurrection. Number one, what's at stake in it? Number two, what's accomplished by it? And thirdly, what is the goal for it? What is at stake in the resurrection? What is accomplished by the resurrection? And what is the goal for it? Let's talk about what's at stake. You know, let's look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? I got so excited in prepping for this and thinking about this message and thinking about today, I, I really wanted to drill down on the historical, verifiable reality that Jesus Christ did raise from the dead. And it is historical, it is verifiable, it is theological, it is all of those things. Think about Moses, for example. Moses is such an important figure in our Bibles. Most parents decide to not name their kid Moses. I mean, there are lots of Noahs. There's some in the room. There's lots of Adams. There's lots of Davids. There's lots of carry on. Moses, at least in 2021, was the 500 and something most uh, popular name for kids born that year. It's way down the list. Why? Because his shoes are so big to fill. I mean, this is the guy who led the Israelites out of Egypt, 10 plagues, split the Red Sea, manna and quail in the wilderness. Big figure. But you know when Moses died? No one even knows where he died. It says that he was alone, and nobody to this day knows. It says at the end of Deuteronomy, to this day, no one knows where he was buried. The Lord buried himself. Public figure, important figure, died. We don't know where he was buried. But Jesus Christ, he died the most public death that there could be. 
Because he died. His death was not just historical, it was theological. Christ died, history, for our sins, theology. He died for you and for me. And not only did he die, and not only is it historical and theological, but it's verifiable. You see, the tomb, it tells us exactly where the tomb was in the text. It says exactly who it was that went and saw him first or tried to see him. It gives us all these details so that we could verify it is real. And I wanted to talk about that. And I wanted to talk about, you know, the, the, the issue of deception. Because some would say, you know, as modern thinkers, we have trouble knowing what is history and what is truly history and how can we know if it really happened or not as modern thinkers. And so we have to wrestle with this issue of deception where the disciples, was Jesus on one side or the other? Were they trying to deceive us? Can we really know? And, but here's the thing about that. So deception, okay, real quick here. Deception, there's two kinds, right? There's the deception of someone takes something false, a deep fake, and says, this is real, and you believe it. The other type of deception, though, is someone tells you the truth, and you're like, no, that can't be right. Those are both deceptions. So a deception, you know, conspiracy theory, for example, it's something that's thought to be true, but it's not. When COVID first hit, you know, one of the theories was, oh, it's spreading by the 5G towers. Did you guys ever hear that one? It was on social media. And so people started destroying 5G towers. They think, hey, we're going to get rid of this thing. I'm sure that the cell phone companies were really excited about that. But then on the other side, you had people who said, there's no pandemic, right? So you have deception on one side, something that is false, given is true, and people believe that, and then something that is true, hey, there is a pandemic, no, there's not. Usually people who believe, who deny the reality, aren't jumping on the bandwagon to get rid of the thing that they're denying. That wouldn't make sense. The folks that said there's no pandemic wouldn't be jumping on the cell phone towers trying to get rid of them. They think it wasn't true. And what's so amazing about the story is none of the disciples, including the Apostle Paul who wrote this, actually thought the resurrection happened. And therefore, it wouldn't make sense that they would be proliferating something that's false. I wanted to talk about that. The 500 witnesses and et cetera, et cetera. But that's not Paul's argument here. Paul's not arguing over whether the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened. He has a different argument that he's making. And which, by the way, if you want to know more about the historical reality of the resurrection, you can pick up a copy of Lee Strobel's investigative journalistic look at the resurrection at our Welcome Center for free, um, the case for the resurrection. But anyway, Paul's not making that argument here. He is saying if Christ, he is assuming the resurrection. He saw Jesus himself. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? He's talking about the one to come. You see, what's happened is, and in Corinth, and people who were influenced by ancient Greek philosophy, they believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. They believed in the gospel and all those things here in the church. But some of them were saying, well, you know what? There's not going to be a physical resurrection. There's not one coming, not for, belief, not for anybody. That, that, that the point of life, the point of this world is to escape this world and go to heaven, and that's it. That's what they believed. 
And if, the reason why that there's probably the case that that is what was going on here is when you look at the, the history of ancient Greek philosophy, and this is certainly a place influenced by that, is that the, the philosophers believed there was this dualism, that matter and spirit are separated. Spirit is good, matter, not so much. And so the goal is for us to escape the physical world to end up into the spirit world. That's the goal. And so taking that belief, they, 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 they put that into their understanding of the gospel. Paul's saying, that is absurd. And he goes on to do in 12 through 19, this whole line of reasoning, this whole line of, line of logic, a reductio ad absurdum, where he takes their idea that there will be no future resurrection and he shows them the absurd consequence of believing such an idea. You see what he says? He says in verse 13, If there is no resurrection of the dead, the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If there's not one to come, then there wasn't one in history. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 14, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. Verse 15, we are found to be doing a deep fake of God, misrepresenting him, taking, claiming to give you his word, but telling you a message that he neither gave us nor did he do. If there is no resurrection to come, it means all these things. And furthermore, if the dead are not raised in verse 15, not even Christ has been raised. He, 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 well, in 16, he resummarizes that. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep have perished. And we are the most pitiful people on the planet. Do you see what he did? As modern thinkers, we're concerned about can we know history? Paul's saying, no, 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 that's, that's verified. That's done. I'm trying to help you to understand the future and your certainty about what is to come. That just as certain as Jesus was raised from the dead, so certainly we know that we one day who believe in him will be raised from the dead. He, he puts these two realities in relationship with one another such that because one is true, the other has to be true. And because the other is true, the first one has to be true. If one is taken away, they're both taken away. It's a biconditional. It's a, not just that because Jesus was raised, you'll be raised. It's if and only if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, then we know that there is a resurrection to come. Here's what I mean, kids. If your parents say, or if, 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 we, if my wife and I said to our kids, okay, listen, you can only go outside if and only if you finish your homework. And a neighbor drives by or you drive by our house an hour later and you see our kids outside, then you know what happened, right? They finished their homework, hopefully. <laughs> on a logical scale, that makes sense. Real life could be other things going on. We did have a four-year-old last year break, make a breakaway down the street. Um, the two are in connection with one another. They're biconditional. If one, then the other. If not one, then the other not either. If Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, then we know, by, we know for certain what our future holds. 
that there will be a resurrection for those who believe in him. That's the argument that Paul is making. And he's saying it would be absurd to say that there is no resurrection to come because if you say that, then everything else about our faith falls apart. That's what's at stake. Not just hinging it on the resurrection of Christ, but hinging it on the one resurrection to come of all believers. A point of fact, Scripture does talk about how there's a resurrection of the believers, the, the righteous and the unjust. Paul actually has comments on that in Acts 24, but that's not in his purview here. He's really focusing on, for believers, what is going to happen. And therefore, the resurrection is not a deep fake. It is the deepest real. It is the most real thing. It, it, it frames how we see reality like nothing else. So let's consider what is accomplished by it. Point number two. We see in verse 20, after Paul concludes his line of reasoning, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, in other words, everything else that I just said is absurd. That can't be. It can't be that there is no resurrection to come because, in fact, Christ has been raised because, as we said, they're in relationship with one another. He has to have been raised because Rather, we have to know that there is one to come because we know that Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by first fruits? That's certainly a farming term and a term that was used in, in the Israelite history of sacrifices. They would take of the first fruits of their crop and they would offer that to the Lord. That was also common in the pagan world uh, in the Roman Empire. Uh, where you're worshiping a deity and you take the first fruits of whatever it is you're harvesting in hopes that God, the deity, or in the case of the Israelites, that the, the God who created everything would bless the rest of the crop. But it's, it's really like this. Do you know how we know that, and some of you are really, really in tune with the, the sequence of how the flowers bloom throughout spring and summer. Do you know how we know that there's going to be blooms coming in June and July? It's because there's some now. The bulbs that were planted in the fall and the things that are coming up now, we see the initial blooms. Those are the first fruits. And so because we know that there are the initial blooms, we know that there's going to be all the other types of flowers that come subsequent to that. So that we could say both that we know that there is going to be roses because we saw the daffodils or whatever, but we also could say at the end of the summer, when the last set of flowers are blooming, we know that there were the first set of flowers that bloomed because we made it this far. Paul is saying, Jesus is the first fruits. He's using that analogy. Because we know he was raised, we know that there's something to come for you who believe, the resurrection for you. He says, he goes on to say in verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Who's that man? For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. What is he saying? He's saying Adam in his rebellion from God brought death into the world. This world is not what it was supposed to be. The fact that you and I know that there are problems in and of itself indicates that this is not what it was supposed to be like. Adam in his rebellion 
has led all of humanity and us following not just biologically but also willfully. Because of that, we all die physically and spiritually without Jesus. And in the same way that Adam is the federal head of all of humanity, Jesus is the federal head of all of who are in him. And for those who believe in him, there will be a resurrection to come. You see, this is the story of all stories. There's a reason why when you read the Odyssey, you're, you're really hoping, it, is Odysseus going to make it back? You're hoping he does. There's a reason why we call Romeo and Juliet a tragedy. Because these two lovers ought to be able to be together, but they can't. There's a reason why when you watch the Avengers, and when half of them died, you're like, no, that can't be the end, right? Why? Because inside your heart, you actually hope there's a resurrection. You hope that this is not all that there is. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the fairy tale of all fairy tales, except it's true. It's true. It changes how we view ourselves. It changes how we view our present because we know the hope that is to come, that one day you and I who believe in Jesus Christ will be raised it is a story that so impacts our current status. I, I really appreciate the, this, the example of this one Christian believer, Joni Erickson Tada. You see, she was an athlete at the age of 17 or 18. She had a severe accident. And she broke her spinal cord and is now a quadriplegic. She's Episcopalian. And if you've ever been to an Episcopal service, there's lots of kneeling up and down. Now she lives her life in a wheelchair. And she talks about how when the pastor would invite the congregation to kneel, she would just burst in tears because she, I can't do that anymore. And it was so distraughtful for her that it, she just didn't know how, how could she engage in church services like this until one day. Easter, Sunday morning, the pastor invited everyone to kneel, and just like so many times before, she started to burst out into tears, but she decided to pray the prayer that he invited them to pray, and then it hit her. There's going to come a day, I'm going to have a new body. That's what the resurrection means. It says, she said, I suddenly realized that when I get to the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I'll be able to do on my resurrected legs is to drop down on grateful, glorified knees and kneel quietly before the feet of Jesus. And then I'm going to get on my feet and I'm going to dance. She says, she adds, can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is a spinal cord injured like me? Can you imagine the hope this gives to someone who's just manic depressive? No religion, no other philosophy other than biblical faith promises us new bodies, not just new minds and hearts, 
Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ do people hurting like me find such enormous hope to live. Where else are you going to find hope like that? Every other religion, you, there's a sense of escaping this world or you become one with the general consciousness. But it is only in Jesus Christ that there is a promise of a renewed physical world as well as being renewed spiritually. It gives you hope. You see, if there is no resurrection, then this physical experience is the best you will ever have until it's over. But if there is a resurrection, then this is the worst physical experience you will ever have. If you have mental health issues, you're going to one day have a mind that is perfectly fine and emotions that work perfectly stably. If you, have image, if you have body image issues, you will one day have a body that will never disappoint you. If you're lonely, you'll one day be able to love perfectly. That is the hope of the resurrection. So what is the goal for it? Paul gives us a sketch of the end of human history in verses 23, 24 and following. He says, each in his own order, in verse 23, Christ, the first fruits, and then his coming, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. What he's saying is, Jesus first was raised, and then at the end, when he comes, his people will be raised from the dead. They'll be transformed into heavenly bodies. And this doesn't give us all the, all the aspects of the new heavens and the new earth, but it tells us. Verse 24, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every power and authority, and that Jesus must reign, and he is reigning right now until all his enemies are placed under his feet. Do you see why the first resurrection, the Christ, Christ resurrection, is so connected to the end that there must be a resurrection? At the end, it's because death is God's enemy. Jesus is reigning and he's doing what he's doing now is he's putting all of his enemies under his feet. If you've watched the, I think it was the Boba Fett series and there was the, the syndicate, they, he tried to go, they were trying to go around and take, take out all of their enemies. Jesus is the only one in history that destroys all of his enemies, and the only blood that he spills is his own. He's wiping out all of his enemies. He is wiping out death, and the only way for death to be wiped out is that for those who are in Christ, they one day will be raised and to never face death again. That is the goal. And the ultimate goal of this is so that God would be all in all. In the movie uh, Inception... So the, the, the end of the movie, it leaves us dangling, right? Because the Inception was this movie that was based on this idea that you could plant an idea into someone's mind, an Inception, if you could enter into their dreams. You enter into their dreams and you, you sort of plant this idea and then they wake up and they think that they had the idea. And so the whole movie is about that. And there's this attempt to plant an idea in this one individual's life, in, in his mind, 
And so the guys around that, are, are, they're doing it, and they're in the dream. And the thing about the dreams are, is that it, in each time you, you, you fall asleep, if there's a dream, time has a different pace. It goes slower in the dream. And then if you dream about dreaming, each subsequent time, time goes even slower. So much so that if you get too far deep in a dream of a dream of a dream, there's a chance you may not make it out. You'll be stuck. And so the end of the movie, it leaves us hanging. There was one of the characters. He, he, I think it was in a dream and a dream of a dream. <laughs> and time was running out. And we don't actually know if he made it out. Maybe he was stuck. And you see, the thing about Jesus when he died, if he didn't raise from the dead, rise from the dead if he wasn't raised, he would be stuck and so would you. But because he, ra- he was raised from the dead, he, def- he defeated death. So that none of us are stuck in our sins. None of us are stuck with this being the best physical experience we will ever have. And, but we all have hope, those of us who turn to him in faith. So what do we do? What do we do with this? We need to remind ourselves and and meditate on the reality that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just historical, it's not just verifiable, it's not just theological, it is the deepest real of all of human existence. You and I may not know what tomorrow holds, but we do know what the future holds. You may, you, we may not be able to say with certainty that we would be here tomorrow, but we could say with certainty that when Jesus returns, we're going to rise with him. How do you have this assurance? How do you have this promise of the resurrection? Maybe you say, you know what, I'm a moral person. I, I, do, I work hard. I, do, I, I, I study well. I'm kind to people. I give a little. I don't know about all that sin stuff, but I sure would like to have that resurrection assurance. Well, you see, the thing is, you can't pick and choose. You see, do you see what Jesus is doing? His kingdom is one of making God all in all. And the reality is, is that if you're not in Christ, you're part of the rebellion. You're a part of Adam. You're, 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 you're falling in line with the, the, the set of decisions that leads to death. You were born under Adam. You need to be born again in Christ. You need for Jesus to be your all in all. You must make your confession that he rose from the dead. If you want to enter into the power of his resurrection, you have to enter into the suffering of his death and identify with that. For those whom he died, he rose again. And in him, we have this great hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for everyone here and those of, who are home on Zoom. I thank you, Father, that we're not just here to celebrate some historical reality that makes no bearing on present status, but I thank you that your resurrection is so real, it frames our entire existence. And Lord, I pray that you would help anyone desiring to enter into that reality Lord, to have the faith, the courage 
to accept who you really are. In Jesus' name, amen.